The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Mariana Chilton. She is a professor at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University in Philadelphia. She is the director of the Center for Hunger-Free Communities and is co-principal investigator of Children's Health Watch, a national research network that investigates the impact of public assistance programs on the health and well-being of young children and their caregivers. Dr. Chilton founded Witnesses to Hunger, a participatory action study to increase women's participation in the National Dialogue of Hunger and Poverty. She is Principal Investigator of the Building Wealth and Health Network, which is designed to incentivize entrepreneurship and self-sufficiency in the Temporary Assistance for Needy Family Programs. Dr. Chilton received her Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania, her Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology from the University of Oklahoma, and a Bachelor of Arts degree from Harvard. I have heard her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Association meeting in 2012, and I have been following her work ever since. She has testified before the U.S. Senate and U.S. House of Representatives on the importance of child nutrition programs and other anti-poverty policies. She has even served as an advisor to both Sesame Street and the Institute of Medicine. She has won national awards, and her work has appeared in national news across the nation. Welcome, Dr. Shelton. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I was really intrigued by the fact that you hold a Ph.D. in folklore and folk life, as well as a master's of public health. Tell me how one informs the other. Well, thank you so much for the question. I really have an opportunity to demonstrate how just great appreciation for humanity and creative human expression interacts with science and public health. So my degree in folklore and folk life was something that I worked on with American Indians in western Oklahoma, and I learned from people in Oklahoma about the experience of deep poverty and hunger and how they're related to obesity, depression, alcoholism, and beyond. And the way that I learned about that was just by living among my friends, among colleagues, among different kinds of people, doing what's called participant observation I went to the grocery store with many people. I sat down and did a lot of interviews. I participated in ceremonies, went to school graduations, and I learned a lot about how nutrition interacts in our everyday lives and also about the spiritual and moral and social components of nutrition that are so important and that have informed my work ever since. When I moved to Philadelphia back in 2000, I wanted to continue my work with American Indians and continue to work on nutrition But I didn't really know how to quite do that, so I started to just volunteer at the food pantries and food cupboards all around the city of Philadelphia to get trained up by regular people. That's one of the things that we learn in folklore and folk life is that you, where is the best wisdom? The wisdom is what we call sort of street corner philosophy is regular people have the answer 
they hold the key to what the solutions are in our society. So I wanted to learn from regular people about what is that experience of hunger, what does it feel like, what does it look like, what does the experience of dignity and justice mean, and how are they living that, how are they seeking that in their daily lives. And so I learned a lot about hunger from mostly women who were using the food pantries. At the same time, when I was living in Oklahoma doing my folklore research earlier on in my career, I also realized that there were ways that health officials were able to count people out of existence. They were able to make a convincing argument about whether they should have a program or not or whether they needed a hospital or not based on numbers and things called odds ratios and key values. And I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know what they were talking about and how they could use numbers to justify programming. And that's why I got into public health. I started to learn about how is disease spread throughout a population what does it mean when you have many, many people suffering from the same set of issues, nutrition issues or health issues, and what are the patterns that the numbers show you? What's the story that you can see in the data? And so what I'm doing really in my research and in my work with the Center for Hunger-Free Communities in Philadelphia is we are working on framing the story through human experience, um, that's the folklore and folk life, and then also through data and through science. We're telling stories in a number of different ways. I think this is such a critical part of our society moving forward. And in fact, one of the pieces that I love about your website, that is centerforhungerfreecommunities.org, is that at the very top, you announce that you are seeking solutions based on science and the human experience. And I think so often in our professional world, at least I think it's true in nutrition, that we put so much emphasis on science and, as you mentioned, numbers, that we downplay the value of documenting this human experience. Yeah, that's so true. And I think I think that they both help, though. I think that a lot of people feel like, well, you know, that's just one person's story or that's not representative if you're using, if you're trying to help a person tell their own story. And so if you have the numbers that can also surround that and can demonstrate, well, this person is one of a thousand, one of a million, then if you use the science, the empirical evidence and the, the data behind it, you can demonstrate, well, for every experience that you're hearing here, from this one person, magnify it times a million or 40 million, and that's almost how many people in the United States are food insecure. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that I learned about making sure that you're using both science and the human experience is that when I was working with a program that we call Children's Health Watch, it's an epidemiological study. We've interviewed over 80,000 people in several different cities, and we're, it's all numbers. It's all epidemiological research. But what we do is we can actually show fluctuations in food stamp participation actually is related to fluctuations in hospitalizations. That means that food stamps or SNAP can actually be protective for children in terms of protecting them from having to be hospitalized. That's fantastic data. That's extremely important. When I was testifying before Congress on the Farm Bill, which funds the food stamp program, I remember I was really paying attention to all of my numbers, and I noticed that the people in the room, their eyes started to glaze over. They could not relate because while the numbers were interesting, they were not convinced because they couldn't relate to it in in any humanistic way. 
that's when I realized, mm, I got to get back into doing our folklore work and uh, start figuring out how I can get regular people, the wisdom of regular people and the experiences of regular people in front of policymakers in order to really convince them in a humanistic way. Right. And even our language, language and numbers. So I have some statistics in front of me. You know, you read in, in addition to the million number, which I have a really hard time grasping, but mm-hmm. one in five American households with young children live in food security. But if you jump over, and these are this statistic I'm going to repeat now is from the USDA. Households with children headed by a single woman, 30.3% of the children in those households will suffer with food insecurity. And I think that we should probably talk about There's food insecurity at different levels, and then there's hunger. We stopped using the word hunger. We started talking about food insecurity. How do you talk about hunger and food security? Define those terms for me. Sure, okay. Well, I talk about it a little bit differently depending on the audience. So as a scientist, when I'm giving a scientific talk, I talk about food insecurity. Food insecurity is the lack of access to enough food for an active and healthy life. It has two components. The first component is the enough piece. That means not having enough food, not having enough money for food. That's what a lot of people may equate with hunger, is running out of food. But the second part is for an active and healthy life, there's the public health piece. You can maybe have food. Your stomach may not give you the signal that it's hungry, or you may not think you're necessarily hungry, but you may be eating the same kind of food over and over and over again, pasta, oodles of noodles, because you're trying to eat in a way where you don't have enough money to put variety in your diet. That's not the kind of diet that helps you to lead an active and healthy life. So when I'm talking to scientists, to dietitians, To people who understand a little bit about social justice issues, I focus on food insecurity. But really when I'm giving a regular talk and trying to to connect with people on the issue of not having enough money for food, I talk about hunger. And hunger is is a term that, from my perspective, is something that we all understand when as soon as we're born, we cry out with hunger. We are immediately drawn to the need for food. Those are experiences that we all might know, even if it's just a passing experience, But I think a lot of us can maybe extend that notion of not having enough food, how it affects your mood, how it affects your physical health. And when you are struggling in such a chronic way experiencing hunger, I think people can potentially relate to that. I don't think people can relate to the concept of food insecurity. So I prefer to talk about issues of hunger, about hardship, not being able to afford enough food. That keeps us talking in a regular way that brings in more people into the dialogue. Mm-hmm. What I remember so well about your presentation, and I should say that I've heard many presentations on hunger laced with numbers, mm-hmm. but it was your presentation that I remembered so well because mm-hmm. of your images. But tell our listeners a little bit about your project where you allowed individuals who are dealing with hunger, food insecurity, to document their lives and teach us what they were experiencing. Sure. Well, so the program that I started back in 2008 is called Witnesses to Hunger. And it really came after that time when I was testifying before Congress and I recognized that people's eyes were glazing over and I had just come off of a series of ethnographic interviews in people's homes when I just had met some really phenomenal women who were working so hard and they were so brilliant 
And I just wanted to figure out how can I get these legislators into the living rooms of such interesting and important families? How can I get them to experience what I'm seeing, what I'm witnessing? And that's when I knew about the concept of photo voice as a folklorist. It's a, it's a great way to get people who have uh, very limited literacy or who may not be necessarily reading the news. It's, and it's a way to get a person's story out far beyond their own kitchen. I thought, well, if I can't get a legislator into someone's kitchen, I'm going to bring that kitchen to the legislator. So we started Witnesses to Hunger. I gave out digital cameras to 40 women in Philadelphia and uh, said, listen, you're the expert. You have all of the expertise that you need. Here's a free digital camera. If you want to speak out and speak to legislators and speak to policymakers and to the press about your experiences and teach the world about what you think needs to change, join in. Of course, the phone started ringing off the hook. I think people were more interested in the camera than they were sure. <laughs> telling their story. But I think that what people started to realize when they joined into Witnesses to Hunger was how amazing it was to have an opportunity to not only demonstrate and show their lives in a very intimate way through their photography, but when we started mounting the exhibits and we had legislators come to talk directly with them or people who were wealthy or the press, the members of Witnesses to Hunger were absolutely shocked that people would be interested in their stories, that they would be interested to listen. And that, for me, was a really phenomenal experience where members of Witnesses felt all of a sudden, oh, actually, my voice does matter. I actually have an opportunity to make a change. I am a part of a community. I am an expert. And for the people who were wealthy or who had never really had an opportunity to really dialogue with someone who was low income and really engage in that experience, they too were so grateful to have an opportunity to approach the issue in a way that's humanistic, like coming in as an equals. Well, tell me more about what happened. Why is it your house like this? what was going on there. And it's just it's a much better type of way to have a dialogue and to understand what that experience of hunger is like. And also to understand that people have a lot of mutual struggles and challenges and that everyone wants to get out of poverty. No one is enjoying this experience of being poor. No one has any desire to be hungry. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Mariana Chilton. She is a professor at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and she is also the director of the Center for Hunger-Free Communities. Well, I want to talk about myths, about how perhaps individuals living in poverty and living with hunger are perceived by others, perhaps they haven't seen the pictures, perhaps they haven't met the individuals or had a conversation one-on-one where they can hear the truth about how they got to where they are. But I'm sure that your project is helping to bust some myths about those who are living in poverty. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what some of the most common misperceptions are about those who are forced to rely on our government's, uh, dare I say, shrinking safety nets. What do you hear, and what are the best ways to bust those misperceptions or myths? Well, thank you so much for the question. One of the other reasons we started Witnesses to Hunger was because we were so disgusted with the myths, and we wanted to break through that. We wanted to bust open the myths and bust open the stereotypes. I think that There's this idea that people who are on food stamps or who don't have enough money for food are somehow lazy or are not working hard enough or not motivated enough 
But that couldn't be further from the truth. I've never met such hardworking and motivated people in my life as those who are the members of Witnesses to Hunger. They are so savvy in terms of how to find different food pantries or how to save pennies. They know when they're buying groceries, they have it cost out down to the penny. They could tell you the price of milk off the top of their head at the local corner store or at the supermarket that's closest. They are very, very savvy. The fact is that they just don't make enough money to be able to stretch the dollar. And it's not because they don't know how to save money. They don't, it's not because they don't have the will or the desire to you know, make economic decisions. It's, it's that their jobs pay such low wages, and if they get a supplement to those wages from Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, the TANF program, or from food stamps, those programs may be helpful, but they still don't provide enough. They're still not filling the gap. So I think that what's wonderful is that the members of Witnesses can draw out for people, this is how much my rent is, this is how much childcare is, my transportation, food, et cetera, and my utilities, and this is how much I pay. They can break it out for you no matter what they do, especially if they don't have a good education, there's no way that they're going to be able to make enough money to support themselves. So that's one way that the members of Witnesses fight the stereotypes I think that one of the most profound moments of breaking up stereotype was when Tiana Gaines-Turner, a member of Witnesses to Hunger, was invited to testify in front of Paul Ryan's budget subcommittee in the House, House of Representatives. This was before he was Speaker of the House. And he was trying to understand, well, how effective was the war on poverty? Tiana Gaines was the only person who was poor that was invited to provide expert testimony on the war on poverty. That should tell you something right away, that they don't really value the expertise of people who are poor. But when she described all the different things that she did in order to get an income, and she described how she was a volunteer t-ball coach on the weekends and in her off hours, I think that the members of the House of Representatives were absolutely floored. There was, They were all amazed and very congratulatory to her and how hard she works, how hard her husband works, and vowed to look into how we can improve our public assistance programs. And, of course, several of the members in Congress were interested to talk about wages and how we can increase wages. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I hear repeated that I try my best to bust a myth is that there's a lot of abuse within the system. Maybe it's human nature where we don't like it when we think somebody is getting something that we're not. You probably understand this more than I studying folklore and, and human behavior, but mm-hmm. it seems like there's a a sense of injustice on the part of someone who feels like somebody's getting a handout and I'm not. I'm working really hard. How do we talk about that? You know, that's a really tough one. First of all, SNAP, or the food stamp program, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, it changed its name several years ago, but most people still call it food stamps. Sure. The food stamp program has the lowest fraud, waste, and abuse rates out of all of the public assistance programs. So there's very little fraud, very little abuse within that particular program. I think that there's a sense of people who are wealthy or people who don't use the public assistance programs when they view people who do use them, I think that they're afraid. I think they're afraid that this idea that if someone is suffering, it's not my problem. It has to be their problem. Right. And if they're using the public assistance program, they must have a problem. 
And if they're still hungry and still using public assistance, they must be doing something wrong. Therefore, they must be abusing it, which takes all of the blame and accountability on the wealthy person away. So it's a way of eschewing or getting rid of one's own social responsibility to help others, to reach out, to understand more. So my sense is it's a fear of the other. It's this uh, wanting to blame someone else for their troubles, wanting to blame the programs, wanting to think that somehow they are less than so that the person who's not on the programs can somehow feel better about themselves and walk away without any sense of responsibility or social connectedness. Mm, that's very interesting. You know, that word fear comes up, and it leads mm-hmm. me to some of the work and papers you've published about the aspect of trauma and how yeah. individuals who are living in poverty and living with food insecurity have often experienced adverse childhood experiences. And in 2015, you were quoted in a paper in which you said, this is brutal stuff. And I, I did take that away from your talk at the Dietetic Association meeting. It was brutally hard for us to see so many individuals in pain, but then to understand that the pain just didn't start today. The pain goes back to the adult childhood experiences. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm so grateful that you brought that up because I really get an opportunity. Most of the conversations about hunger in America stop either at emergency food or at the food stamp or SNAP program. But the issues of hunger actually go quite deep in the U.S. And it's something that I learned from the members of Witnesses to Hunger. When they were taking their photographs, the types of photographs that they took, they did take pictures of the empty refrigerator, the empty cupboards, but there were far more photographs about where the subject matter was violence and poor housing and this sense of insecurity overall, the lack of safety And as we began to explore that more with each other, they said, look, Mariana, yeah, I'm interested in, yeah, the nutrition is important, the food is important, but what I want the world to know is that when I was a kid, I was abused. Or when I was a teenager, I had to run away from home, and I was homeless for so many years. And that caused so much depression and a sense of low self-esteem. So I have a really hard time continuing my education. I have a really hard time keeping down a job. I have a really hard time in my relationships. And so I kind of was forced to get into learning more about exposure to violence. And so I returned back to the members of Witnesses with another set of interviews and asked about what happened during your childhood and why is that important to who you are today and to your experiences of hunger today. And they started to describe what we have started in the scientific world to talk about adverse childhood experiences. And those are experiences with physical and emotional neglect or abuse or sort of this overall concept of household dysfunction or household challenges. That means if when you were a child, did you have a parent who was in prison? Did you have a parent who was being abusive to another parent? Did you have someone who had a major mental health problem? All of those things, when you have... And on a scale of 1 to 10, if you have four or more of those adverse childhood experiences, you're much more likely to have problems with diabetes, cardiovascular disease in your adult life. Well, we were the first ones to uncover that actually you're much more likely to also be food insecure. Your household doesn't have enough money for food. And that's even controlling for or, you know, adjusting for whether a family was on food stamps or getting public assistance. That for us was very groundbreaking because 
a lot of people were trying to understand, well, how do you have persistent food insecurity? Why do you have persistent poverty? The members of Witnesses to Hunger were trying to explain to me it has to do with exposure to violence and neglect in my own childhood. That has been actually quite revolutionary, I think, to the field of food insecurity research. But one last thing about why is this brutal? Remember that I use the numbers, so I've proven this in terms of numbers in the epidemiological studies that I've run, but I've also done qualitative interviews with people who report, these are caregivers who have young children, and they report that their youngest child is hungry. Well, then when you find out from the moms that we've spoken to about what their childhoods were like, it's absolutely brutal. Mm -hmm. Very, very disturbing experiences. And they say, look, you can't separate my hunger from today from the violence and the hunger that I experienced when I was a kid. So I think that if we're going to really address hunger and food insecurity in the country, we cannot stop at thinking about at think, you know thinking about food stamps or food or wages. We have to also make sure that we're preventing violence in the home and in the community, and that we're actually providing mental health supports for people who have experienced violence. Yeah, you know I've pulled up a press release that came out of your center, mm-hmm. and there is a poll quote from Claudia where she says. The hunger, the pain, the depression, it always comes back. It's like a bird nesting in your head. And I think that is a powerful quote for us to think about when we are rolling up our sleeves now. It's a a new year, and we are considering what can each of us do. I, I happen to love a quote that says, to whom much is given, much is expected. We just have a couple of minutes, but... Give our listeners a charge, if you would. Help us be a better society. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, when I think of Claudia's quote and how when you struggled as a kid, it stays with you for your life. It, It nests in your head for life. That is so important to remember that. It's so important to remember that acts of kindness also nest in the head. So I think when we're thinking about how we can operate as a society, when we have hunger in our society, it is a demonstration that we are not taking good care of each other. Hunger is very much associated with isolation, humiliation, and shame. So in our own lives, we have to find ways where we can express our compassion for each other, where we can create a sense of community, a sense of connectedness, and that we use words and we use gestures and actions that are kind and that are promoting a sense of optimism, a sense of humanity, a sense of we're connected, we're all a part of the same human family. That not only can help, especially the young people in our society, can actually get a a good feeling and carry that with them throughout their lives, but those who may have a bird nesting in their head, they'll have a sense of, of some relief, some comfort, some sense of things might be okay. But we have to do that inside of ourselves, and we have to create more kinder, more compassionate communities. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. 
podcast. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Mariana Chilton, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Chilton, not only for your work, but for sharing your time with us today and helping us become a more compassionate society. I will make sure that our listeners have a link to your website so that everyone can see the powerful photographs, the incredible interviews with individuals who can share their story. www.centerforhungerfreecommunities.org Thank you. Thank you very much.